Psalm 48. We will read the psalm in its entirety. So write the sons of Korah as they are carried along by the Spirit, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish, notice, forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah Rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will indeed stand forever. You may be seated. In the year 1722, Jonathan Edwards had accepted the call to shepherd, pastor a small group of Presbyterians in New York City. Edwards was only 18 years of age. Imagine that. When he moved from the Connecticut River Valley, With a population of around 10,000 people, New York City wasn't anywhere near the population it is today. While the young Edwards would eventually become one of the most widely recognized theologians and pastors to minister on American soil, he was at the time only a little-known local church pastor. One might even say a bit of a pup when it came to pastoral ministry. During the first few months of his pastorate, he penned a series of personal commitments. And he called these personal commitments resolutions. Resolutions. These resolutions would serve as a guide for his pastoral ministry and for his personal decisions for the rest of his life. You see, even the young Edwards understood that there would be various temptations he would face, and those temptations wouldn't always, always be instruments in drawing him away to what is evil. At times, those temptations would be instruments in drawing him away from what is ultimate to what may be less ultimate subservient to the ultimate, pen ultimate. And so Edwards penned these resolutions. I had the privilege when I was in college of reading these resolutions for the very first time and I have revisited those resolutions a number of times since. Well, we're not going to unpack Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. I would exhort you, however, if you enjoy this sort of thing, to purchase Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They're quite short and you can read one a day and just meditate on these resolutions. But this morning... What I would like to do is I would like to provide something similar for us as a church. A kind of group of resolutions. Over the previous month, we have unpacked the nature of the church. We've been in a topical series and we've been unpacking the nature of the church. We've unpacked membership, the importance of membership in a local church. We've we've unpacked the distinguishing marks of a church. Well, today what I want to do is get a bit more practical and I want to move from the more abstract to the more concrete. 
and ask the question, how is it that these truths grow legs and walk here at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee? And so I'm going to offer you this morning, if you're taking notes, a series of what we could call resolutions, but we're going to call them commitments. It means the same thing. We're going to offer six, if you're taking notes, six commitments for First Baptist Powell for the future. It is my desire that these commitments will be parameters, informative and guiding parameters for us as a church, but also, if I may, for me as your senior pastor in the months and the years ahead. I know some of you like me to give you the entire outline up front. I'm not going to do that. I'm resisting this morning. And instead, we're going to take a bit, of a, a bit more of, a, of an inductive approach. We'll unpack each one, identify each one as we move along in their turn. So six commitments for First Baptist Powell. We will not be able to unpack all of them at length. Uh, we'll do an injustice, doubtless, to some of them. But we're going to walk through these together in topical or thematic fashion. And all of these commitments have to do with the church So if you're taking notes, the first commitment I have for us as a church, or the first resolution, perhaps, if you like, I have for us as a church is this, to remain devoted to biblical and historical Christianity. Remain devoted to biblical and historical Christianity. And if you've been with us the last few weeks or the last month or so, you'll recognize that that really all of these commitments grow out of everything we've already said. And so if you've not been with us and you want to know more about the theological or the ecclesiological foundations upon which we're building this morning, you're welcome to get on our website and listen to some of those previous sermons regarding the nature of the church. We want to first be biblical as a church, right, church family? As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that famous passage, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we believe that the only infallible authority for the church is the Bible. And we want to maintain that belief. This is why our church has and will continue to feed on a steady and consistent diet of expository preaching. What we're doing right now is actually a bit atypical. We do this at times in between sermon series in books. But we may spend a year in a book study and then spend four or five weeks in a topical study. We want the steady diet for the church to be an exposition of the word of God. And that will continue to be the case. That has been the case long before my time here at this church. Through the faithful ministry of Pastor Phil, perhaps even more pastors who went before him. This is also why, by the way, this is why we weave scripture throughout our liturgy and throughout our corporate worship service. Did you notice that this morning? As we are gathered together for a time of worship, what are we doing? We're singing scripture. We're reciting scripture, we're reading scripture, we're listening to scripture. Now we're opening up scripture. We confess and pray scripture. We're sent out with scripture. In many ways, our worship service teaches us how to practice our faith. We're trained every Lord's Day how to be Christians. So we weave scripture. Pastor Brett weaves scripture throughout our worship services. But I want you to notice also in this commitment that I have included the qualifier historical. That's not there just because I love church history. That's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. Why have I included the word, the qualifier, historical, to remain devoted to biblical and historical Christianity, because we're not interested in biblical interpretation and application that is novel. In in some ways, 
we're just being redundant here. To be historically Christian is to be biblically Christian. But we're saying this in an era that I think has lost its moorings from its past. We're saying this in an evangelical church as a whole that prizes and treasures fads in the novel, the new, neoteric. This is just cultural for us, not just as evangelicals, it's cultural for us as as Americans, as, as moderns living in the 21st century. We seek to be historical. Consider Jeremiah 6, 16. The prophet Jeremiah exhorts us, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Notice what he says about the ancient paths, where the good way is. Where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. So we're not going to seek to be to be new and exciting. We're going we're to seek to be culturally relevant, certainly. We're going to seek to contextualize ourselves in appropriate ways. We're going to seek to be informed by what's happening around us, what's happening even inside of us as people who are impacted by culture. But we're going to seek to be biblically and historically Christian. It doesn't mean, this doesn't mean, and we want to guard against this. We'll have to guard against this because I'm your pastor doesn't mean that we aim to be inclined toward a kind of romanticized primitivism in which older always means better. That falls prey to the opposite trap of the modern era. It claims that newer always means better. No, there are, there are some old things that I don't want to revisit. Uh, the plague being one of them. Now, someone said the other day, I'm thankful for air conditioning. Yes, indeed. I don't want to go to a time when there was not air conditioning, especially living in East Tennessee. There are perhaps parts of the world where that'd be okay. East Tennessee is not one of them. I'm thankful for some of these developments. The modern era has brought about some welcomed developments. Not all as superficial as the ones I've just mentioned. And additionally, as a church, it's important to remain, remain rather culturally informed. For example, I'll give you an example of this. Just a practical example. This morning we were led in congregational worship, certainly by our Advent choir, by our orchestra. We were led in congregational worship by our band. And the instruments that our orchestra utilizes and the instruments that our band utilizes were entirely absent in the early church. Entirely absent. We're thankful for these instruments. We don't take it that simply because early Christians didn't do it, we shouldn't do it. No, no, this is, this is a way to be culturally conditioned and, and contextualized as a 21st century church. On the other hand, I want you to notice this because you're going to experience this in just a moment. On the other hand, in a few moments, we are going to recite the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is is a creed that seeks to explain what the word of God teaches in short form. It has been utilized by Christians in some form or another since likely the late second century. And so you see, you find that tension. We're led by a band and we're reciting a creed. I love that. I love that. We're seeking to be biblical and historically Christian. Recognizing that we exist in the 21st century and we want to make an impact on this world for the glory of Jesus Christ. In this culture, right here in Powell, Tennessee. Okay, that's our first commitment. I'm going to be prone to spend too long on that one. We're going to keep moving. Second commitment as a church is this. To be content, to be content, now listen to the words, as one of many local churches. To be content as one of many local churches. What do I mean? We are not going to seek primacy as a local church. By the way, I hope this isn't too terribly offensive. I am a Protestant. This is one of the reasons why I think Roman Catholicism became became what it became. 
I think it was a local church that outgrew itself and began to claim primacy over other local churches. And it's ironic to me that evangelical churches do the same thing, don't we? We want to kind of absolutize our church. We want to be the church in East Tennessee. May I submit to you, God does not have that for us. What he has for us is to be a faithful expression among many expressions in the universal body of Christ. He has that privilege for us. So we're not interested in poaching members of other churches or of imitating what they do so that we can attract people before they do or keep our people happy and content not to go up the road. That's an unhealthy view of the local church. And we are overrun by it. I don't just mean outside of us. I find it in my own heart, brothers and sisters. These commitments grow out of a, I hope, out of a pastoral heart of prayer that finds these struggles within me. Now, there are two sides of this coin. I want to mention them before we move on. On the one hand, we will seek to be who we are without apologies and without equivocation. We have Baptist in our name. We don't shy away from that conversation. We are Baptists as a way of describing what we believe Scripture teaches. We recognize that the entire body of Christ is not to be subsumed under the category of Baptist. However, we're Baptists because we read Scripture in this way. And we're submitting to Scripture in this way. So we're going to be unique, which is one of the reasons why we exist alongside other local churches. It's one of the reasons why we're here. And we even have some idiosyncrasies as a Baptist church, as a Southern Baptist church. There are some things that are unique about us that you don't find in some of the other local Southern Baptist churches. It just in some ways justifies our existence as one expression of the larger body of Christ. But there's another side to this. On the other hand, while we're going to seek to be who we are without apologies and without equivocation, on the other hand, it will be important that we celebrate the existence of other local churches. We need to celebrate their existence. We need to recognize that they are a different expression of the body of Christ. And of course, this is with the understanding that there are parameters, okay? This is not the ecumenical movement in which we we try to reduce Christianity to the lowest common denominator, which essentially means we compromise the gospel. We're not doing that. We are recognizing that there are brothers and sisters that may be a bit different than we are on some things, and we want to celebrate their existence as brothers and sisters and as a bona fide local church, a local expression of the universal reality of the body of Christ. No local church perfectly embodies the many attributes of the universal church. Do you know this, church family? I mean, I hear people say this from time to time. Well, you know, I like such and such church because they do this. The church up the road didn't do this very well. That doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, if you went up to the church up the road, they probably do some things that the church you're currently attending doesn't do very well. And that is just the way it is. We want to learn from one another. It doesn't mean we can't take notes, as it were. You know, when I'm on vacation, what do I do? Well, on the Lord's Day, my wife and children and I go to another church when we're on vacation. If we're local, if we do a kind of staycation, what do we do? We go to another local church for a number of reasons, not the least of which is just expose ourselves to the broader body of Christ, but also, hey, look, I'm, I'm taking notes. There are pastors and churches that have better ideas than I do, and we want to learn from one another. We want to celebrate the diversity of expressions that we find in various local churches. I've heard something comparable to this statement multiple times, and if I could just be frank, I find it in my own heart and affections on a regular basis, and so maybe this is more personal confession than anything else. Maybe this is what the entire sermon is this morning. My pastor is confessing his sin, and we have to sit and listen to it. Sorry. Here's, here's what I have heard and then how I feel at times. Such and such church does this activity, so why aren't we doing it? 
Now, that may be a good question. And maybe we should. I understand the sentiment, but as I've considered it, perhaps, perhaps rather than imitating what another church is doing, perhaps we should seek to provide support for them so they can continue doing it well. Maybe. Maybe that's an opportunity to express our unity in Christ. Maybe there are times when we ought to load up and go to a sister church because they're doing something really well. And we're not going to try to imitate it right up the road. We're just going to serve alongside of them so they can do it even better than they're doing it. I'm just, I'm ruminating, okay? These are thoughts that I'm having as your pastor. We are on the same team as other faithful, gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing and preaching local churches. We're not on different teams. This is not a competition in which the tune from the 40s musical, you know this, Annie, Get Your Gun? This is not a competition in which that tune becomes our mantra, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you, right? That's not a faithful approach to being a local church. When we do this, we make church a competition for consumers. And as pastors, we wonder why. Why we are driven so much by a consumeristic mentality. Because our model cultivates consumerism. Instead, let's be one of many expressions of heaven's embassy. One of many expressions of God's family. One of many expressions of Christ's body. Here at First Baptist Pal. Third, Third commitment, we'll keep going. We are committed, we are committed to prioritize the biblical marks of a church over programs and preferences. We are committed, let me say that again. We are committed to prioritize the biblical marks of a church over programs and preferences. The marks to which I am referring, we've unpacked these in previous weeks. These marks include, I'll just mention them to you, believing and teaching Christian orthodoxy, that is, being biblical, historical Christians. Observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Exercising church discipline. Holding one another accountable to characteristic obedience. Not perfect obedience, characteristic obedience. And repentance. Installing qualified leaders. Men who exude the character of Jesus Christ and men who are capable of opening the word of God and unpacking the word of God and defending Christian doctrine, as it were, against those who oppose. That's a qualified leader. Offering constant prayer. Recognizing our utter dependence on God and exercising the love of Christ. Loving others as Christ has loved us. These are the six marks that we recently unpacked together, these distinguishing marks of a church. And we are committed to prioritizing these biblical marks. Now, we're going to continue to have programs. That's just part of it. Anytime you get together, it's a program. We're going to have programs such as various classes. We're going to have various meetings. We're going to have age-specific gatherings at times. Right? We've got a student ministry We've got children's ministry. We have the privilege of hosting a senior adult ministry and so forth. We will continue to have these various ministries or programs. We'll continue to have various events that's going to happen. However, when any one of these programs become the thing apart from which we don't feel we can be a healthy church, we've lost sight of what a church really is. You know, I, I will hear people say from time to time, you know, I just, I, I love 
I love children's ministry. Let me be clear. I have children, right, who have benefited from children's ministry, okay? We're not, we're not arguing against these programs and these ministries. I'm, I'm beyond grateful for the work of sisters like Amber Brooks, Brandy Satterfield, others. Beyond grateful. Because what they're doing is they're using the program to teach the word of God, to continue to deposit Christian orthodoxy into the lives of these children to come alongside of these families. So that's a preface. That's a disclaimer. Same thing for Pastor Hunter, who's our student pastor. I'm very grateful for the ways in which he leads our student ministry. I have two students in the student ministry and they benefit to sit under Hunter's leadership. They're learning to treasure Jesus Christ because of his influence. But, but sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, if, if there's not a happening student ministry, I just won't consider the church. Or if there's not a happening children's ministry, I won't consider the church. And I do often wonder what such a family would have done for about 1,800 years of the church's existence. Because these are newly developed programs and ministries. They're helpful. They're helpful and they're culturally conditioned, but they are not essentially what it means to be a church. So we want to prioritize the biblical marks of the church. Moreover, we want to weave these biblical marks into the programs. The program is only valuable insofar as it carries these marks as a kind of envoy. The same applies to personal preferences like style of music, right? I mean, my goodness, the worship wars wreaked havoc on the evangelical church. Or the style or temperament of the primary preaching pastor or any other possible preference we may have when it comes to being a local church. And I really do suspect that so many of our challenges as Christians have resulted, well, have resulted from Genesis 3 and the fall, but they've also resulted in being reared in a consumeristic culture. We pay for products we enjoy. That's what we do. We pay for helpful customer service. I mean, when we're, when we're not treated well, we, we wonder what in the world just happened. That person needs to be fired. In fact, some are even comfortable describing their search for a church as church shopping. I, I'm, I'm probably guilty of using that language. And I, and I could say, of course, well, I didn't mean what I said, but well, perhaps I did. Perhaps I did. Perhaps the heart spoke out of the mouth, like Christ warns us. I mean, consider with me for just a moment what appears oftentimes on social media. I'm not on social media, but I'm told about it. I have email. <laughs> and... My wife and others continue to remind me that does not count. But you'll find posts like this, right? New to the area and looking for a church. It's a fine post. Here are some responses you will likely find. We have a great children's program. We have contemporary music. We have traditional music. You typically find one after the other there. We have an exciting youth ministry. We have great programs for all ages. You can come to our church dressed casually or dressed up. Nobody judges here. You can really feel the spirit at our church. Our preacher is down to earth. Now, we could go on and on. None of these are unfaithful responses. None of them. None of them are unfaithful. These are representations of, of programs and, and preferences in churches, but they miss what it means to be and function as a church. Church family, it is possible to have all of those things and not be a church. Maybe this is one of the reasons why I'm not on social media because I, I would have the temptation to want to Help, right? And the Lord rescues, rescues me from my sin. Yeah. Okay. 
Again, nothing wrong with preferences. We all have them. Everybody in the room has preferences. Every one of us appreciates various programs in a church, but we want to prioritize the biblical marks of a church over those programs and preferences while being thankful for those programs and preferences. Well, we've looked at three commitments. First, first, we are committed to remain devoted to biblical and historical Christianity. Second, we are committed to be content as one of many local churches. Third, we are committed to prioritize the biblical marks of a church over programs and preferences. Fourth, fourth, and I know we're doing a disservice to every one of these, Fourth, we are committed to target church health over church growth. We are committed to target church health over church growth. Now here, I am using church growth to refer to an increase in the number of people who attend First Baptist Powell. The Bible will use the language church growth to describe the health of a church edification, the building up of the body. But here I'm referring to numerical increase, numerical size. Now let's be clear, we're not averse to numerical growth. In fact, we want it. We want more people here. We want people to come to know Jesus Christ. We want the waters of our baptistry to stay stirred. We want that. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see the kingdom advance. We want to see more people come to repentance and eternal joy in Jesus Christ. So all of that describes what we desire. Moreover, growth appears in Scripture. This kind of growth from time to time, the clearest examples I know of regarding the presence of, of growth and these approximate even numbers that are identified in Scripture to demonstrate ministry progress is in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 Verse 41 and Acts chapter 4, verse 4 are probably the two clearest examples that I know of where we are told that there are 3,000 souls who were added to the church at Pentecost. Tremendous. Tremendous. And we're also told in Acts chapter 4, verse 4 that eventually the church grew to about 5,000. That is the church there in and around Jerusalem. On the other hand, Scripture contains warnings against placing our confidence in numerical size. It contains warnings against placing our confidence in any visible representation of success. One of the clearest in this respect is 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, where David sins. How? simply by counting the people. We're not told much about it. And commentators scratch their heads and warn us against speculating, but perhaps we're not told because it's clear. Simply counting them represented a confidence in numerical size that distracted David from confidence in his God. David, perhaps like us, believed that bigger is better. And so Israel was judged. God's wrath fell upon Israel. So there are these, there's this tension in Scripture and we need to maintain that tension. We desire to grow, but not by seeking growth. We desire to grow, if the Lord wills, by seeking health, faithfulness. You see, when church growth becomes our goal, church health invariably will be compromised. We don't have time to unpack so many of the megachurches that have imploded. I would suggest to you, for this reason, among others, After all, it feels counterintuitive, doesn't it, to church growth, to be faithful to remove unrepentant 
members. You know what you rarely find? You rarely find, you rarely find a church that focuses on church growth willing to practice church discipline. Not because, not because they're always led by people who don't know Jesus and don't trust in Jesus and don't treasure Jesus, but because I think they are men like I am and like you are and they are tempted to compromise. They're tempted to justify. And what perhaps began as a desire to see more people come to know Jesus Christ has devolved into compromising the marks of the church and compromising church health. So, this is important for us to recognize that it's possible for a church to become less healthy because of growth. Hold on to that, church member. It is possible to become less healthy through numerical increase. That's possible. It depends on why we're growing and how we're growing and how we're handling the growth. Are we caring for the members that are coming into the church or are they just becoming another body in a pew? So growth that results from faithfully making disciples and then discipling those who profess faith in Christ, that's healthy growth. Growth that is managed well by providing pastoral care for each and every member coming into the church, that's healthy growth. Growth that includes walking alongside young Christians through their spiritual journey toward spiritual maturity, that's healthy growth. On the other hand, growth that treats people as another, another mark on our church growth belt, it's dangerous growth. Growth that feeds our Ecclesial ego or my pastoral ego is healthy, rather unhealthy growth. Such growth is detrimental to the health of the body. And growth that equates numerical increase with a movement of the spirit. Growth that equates numerical increase with a movement of the spirit is dangerous. It's dangerous for the church. In the end, growth that is caused by anything other than the work of the Spirit of God through the faithfulness, gospel witness, and ongoing discipleship of God's people is fleeting. But we don't want it. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, in addition to what we've already said, each one of us has to consistently ask ourselves Am I personally growing in such a way that I can come alongside of others? Do I personally know the gospel? Am I personally treasuring Jesus Christ so that I can share the gospel in the community in which I serve, in the spheres of influence in which I operate? Each one of us must take responsibility for the health of this body. This is, this is not something that a senior pastor can do by himself. It's not something God ever intended for a senior pastor. It's my privilege to lead you to do this alongside of me. It's the elders' privilege to lead you to do this alongside of them. Take responsibility for the health of this body by being the people God has called you to be. It's really that simple. There's not a magical ministerial formula for this. This secret ministry paradigm, right? To healthy growth. No, be Christian. Be Christian, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, seek to live a life of obedience as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a grandmother, as a grandfather. Seek to share the gospel with people you come into contact with. Open up your home and share meals with other people, showing them the love of Christ. It really is that simple. So contribute to the health of the church. We're going to continue preaching the word, partaking of the ordinances, fellowshipping, loving one another, showing hospitality. Hopefully we'll do all this more and more faithfully in the weeks, months, and years ahead. That's our desire, to prioritize church health over church growth, and then ironically in the Lord's mercy as we do that, to experience what it means to grow well. 
Fifth, we have two more, and you're doing great. You're doing great. Fifth, we are committed to maintain a biblical understanding of church membership. We are committed to maintain a biblical understanding of church membership. We've already talked about the importance and reasons for church membership in in the series we're wrapping up today. But I want to consider how it is that we as a church are going to go about doing the faithful and challenging task of loving one another well and holding one another accountable and maintaining, let's say it this way, maintaining an accurate membership roster. Church family, this is so very important for us because it is one of, it's one of the disguised sins in our own movement in the Baptist tradition, inflated membership rosters. An inflated membership roster is a poor testimony to the transforming power of the gospel before a watching world. You see, when someone, when someone can remain a member at a church but live characteristically opposed to the gospel they claim to believe, the watching world takes note of a bankrupt gospel. Inflated membership rosters are a poor testimony also to new members about the commitment of church membership. When a new member comes into this church and they're told this is what it means to be a vibrant, vitally connected member of the church and they learn, they discover over time that there are actually plenty of members that are entirely unengaged, in fact, have moved on and perhaps are even living lives that are contrary to the gospel that we preach here. Then the inflated membership roster becomes a poor testimony to those new members. Additionally, an inflated membership roster is a poor testimony and a poor demonstration of love to those who are kept on the roster because it communicates subtly to them. It's okay to trust in Jesus and not give him your life, your soul, your all. That's what it communicates. And brothers and sisters, I know this. I know, I know as parents, as grandparents, it is love that motivates you to want to maintain someone on the roster because there's hope that they'll return. But may I suggest to you, that is not biblical love. I want that person, that son or that daughter, or that grandson or that granddaughter, or that mother or that father, that brother or that sister, what they need is patient, certainly. Prayerful, certainly. Slow, indeed. Pastoral, absolutely. But they need a testimony of this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we love you enough not to allow this to continue. This means a couple of things. One, we do over the next couple of years or whatever we do, constantly monitor our membership roster so that our membership roster faithfully reflects those who are members of this church functionally. It takes into account extenuating circumstances. We've got shut-ins. We've got men and women of the faith who, who are not here because they can't be here. And so it, it means valuing them as members and going to them. We actually have Sisters who consistently do this and even some brothers who consistently do this. It takes into account extenuating circumstances like moving off for college or going away for a, for a job or the military. All of those things are considered, but we seek to maintain an accurate membership roster as a testimony to the transformative power of the gospel. And because when we keep someone as a member of this church, we are making a corporate declaration that we believe this person is walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. And if we can't say that, we're being dishonest, church. 
But it also means, not only does it mean keeping a watch on our, our members together and on one another together, it also means providing the pastoral care that is so desperately needed for God's people and the loving support. One of the ways we're going to be doing this is through shepherding teams. And you'll be hearing about this in the months ahead. Perhaps some of you have heard about this. It's really not, it's not much different about it except it's a little more intentional. We had each elder or an elder-led church. Every elder has a group of members that he prays for. He's, he's as it were, given the stewardship of checking on them loving on them. And we've just recently done that. It was before my time. But it was during COVID when this happened. And then now what we've done is, is our deacons have graciously agreed to partner with the elders. And so now each, each parish, as we're calling it, it's just a group of members. Each group of members has an elder and at least one deacon, some up to three deacons. Why? So they can check on those members and pray for those members and meet tangible needs that surface for those members we recognize that we're going to give an account someday before Jesus Christ. And we want to be able to say, we've labored by your grace to care for the people you purchase with your blood. And we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. That's our desire. Our desire is to please the Lord and bless you. And even to go in love and pursued after those who may be straying from time to time, patiently, prayerfully, in love, pursuing others. I should say this too, just so you know, provides a little accountability for us. Our desire, and we're just, again, starting to do some of these things, our desire is that every single member will hear from at least an elder or a deacon once a month to be intentional, to care for God's people, no matter the size of this church. Whether we're 700 or whether we're 1,500, caring for every member entrusted to our care as a church. Sixth, our sixth and final commitment, and we need to wrap this up. Sixth and final commitment this morning is to declare the message about Christ while demonstrating the love of Christ. We are committed to declare the message about Christ while demonstrating the love of Christ. Both are necessary. And we're talking about the combination of two attributes, going with the gospel and loving others in response to the gospel. So we want to continue going through local evangelism and mercy ministries and missions and we want these things to grow and our involvement to grow. We're also committed to providing a compelling community. I'm robbing a term there. A compelling community characterized by the love of Christ. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, 10 through 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. So this is the message we preach, right? And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be a satisfaction for our sins through his death on the cross. That's what we preach. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then John writes this in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the gospel we proclaim and the gospel we declare becomes a gospel we demonstrate before a watching world. We demonstrate this gospel in the ways in which we love one another. We demonstrate this gospel in Powell, Tennessee, in Knox County, and beyond. And friends, here we should say that if you've not come to know the love of God through Jesus Christ, who lived, died, 
and was raised in glorious power on the third day. If you've not come to treasure this Christ, we exhort you to do that this morning. Surrender to Christ, trust in Christ, come to know the God who is love on your behalf. And if you'd like to know more about this gospel that we want to declare and demonstrate as a church, then you can meet us at a room called the Crossroads. As you exit this room, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there after the service is a room called the Crossroads where there will be an elder who would love to talk with you about what it means to trust in and treasure Jesus Christ. So here are our commitments. I'm just gonna mention them one more time because there may be some of you who miss one or two of them and I don't wanna be stoned. Some of our commitments as a church and really my commitments as senior pastor for us, first, to remain devoted to biblical and historical Christianity. Second, to be content as one of many local churches. Third, to prioritize the biblical marks of a church over programs and preferences. Fourth, to target church health over church growth. Fifth, to maintain a biblical understanding of church membership. And sixth, to declare the message about Christ while demonstrating the love of Christ. When Jonathan Edwards wrote his resolutions, he included a preface. And the preface demonstrated that without the work of God within him, he would inevitably fail. So it is with us, church. Unless the Lord builds this house, we will labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over this city, we will stay awake in vain. So we're gonna close our sermon by reading this short preface. And we're gonna replace the singular I with the plural we, okay? Edwards was talking about himself. We're talking as a church. Here's the preface. It's very short. Being sensible that we are unable to do anything without God's help. We do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable us to keep these resolutions, commitments, so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these, my brothers and sisters for this church family, for the privilege of being one of many local expressions of the universal reality of the body of Christ. Guide us, we pray, for your glory and the glory of your Son. In his name we pray together. Amen.